it's it's Julian Assange and WikiLeaks that have returned honor to to journalism. Julian is a truth teller, and that's what has upset the those who continue what Goebbels called the big lie. Welcome uh, here on 99.5 FM in New York City, uh, WBAI, uh, WBAI.org. Uh, give to WBAI.org, make a contribution, keep this free speech vehicle happening. The reason why I'm talking fast is that, as you uh, heard at the top of the show, John Pilger from a show that he did right here at WBAI when we launched the Assange Countdown to Freedom series on April 11, 2017. Well, well, you know, tomorrow, Sunday, April 11th, is an anniversary, but also the two-year anniversary of Assange being kidnapped and foisted into that horrible squalid prison called Belmorsh. So uh, John's our special guest here. <laughs> Who could be better? The greatest journalist on the planet, greatest filmmaker. He is the best. JohnPilger.com. Go there, buy one of his books, look at all of his 61 films, they're under videos. All right, so that's it. We're going to go right into it uh, with John Pilger, and we'll see you much later. Uh, I'm Randy Credico, and this is June Tabor, Julian Assange's favorite version of the band played Waltz and Matilda. We'll be right back with John. When I was a young man, I carried me back and I lived the free life of the rover. From the Murray's green basin to the dusty outback I waltzed my Matilda all over Then in 1915 the country said Son, it's time to stop rambling There's work to be done And they gave me a tin hat and they gave me a gun and they sent me away to the wall And the band played waltz in Matilda As our ship pulled away from the quay Amidst all the cheers, the flag waving and tears We sailed off to Gallipoli June Tabor that uplifting music and the band played waltzing Matilda. Uh, it, uh, Julian uh, actually recommended that uh, song way back when I was doing the series when it first kicked off just coincidentally on April 11th, uh, 2017. And my two guests on that day were Julian and the guest. I've been talking about uh, the great, the legendary filmmaker, author, and war correspondent, John Pilger. John, it is so nice. I haven't spoken to you in a while, but it's so great to have you back on the show. Very good to be back, Randy. Yeah. Uh, and great, great to see you in, in action 
uh, completely again. Terrific. Well, I took your advice and you said you need to take a break. So I took a two week break. This week, I've done four shows in five days. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm recharged. And you said, just think, just sit there. The best thing to do is to do nothing. And I did that. So, um, but this is a very uh, important uh, week. Uh, it's a two year anniversary of the uh, kidnapping of Julian Assange and uh, him being ensconced in this dilapidated, squalid uh, fortress called Belmarsh. Um, so that was, it was back in November when we last spoke, uh, John. So what, uh, going up to today, from that point on, give us your analysis of, of, of the, uh, what has transpired and what you've seen from uh, way back uh, before the uh, decision. Well, uh, we had, of course, in, in uh, January, the decision uh, made by Judge Vanessa Baretza in London, uh, her decision on whether or not Julian would be extradited. Um, and that was an extraordinary day because she spoke for something like 45 minutes and as you listened to her it was like listening to the hangman intoning you know before before the act uh there wasn't a hint of what was to come in fact what she was saying during most of that 45 minutes was that she fully concurred with the prosecution with the US position uh, that Julian uh, was uh, uh, in effect, in effect, guilty of, uh, uh, of, I suppose, defaming the United States or whatever it is that they've concocted that he's supposed to have done uh, that is, uh, in their view, worth 175 years in prison, but right near the end of this rather depressing litany spoken by Baretza, suddenly she said, uh, and I paraphrase her, he won't be extradited on grounds of, uh, of his health, that, uh, that she was convinced that the, by the evidence that he was at great risk of uh, uh, his mental health was at great risk and he himself was at great risk of uh, perhaps taking his own life. And for that reason and that reason alone, not for all the reasons of principle that have been argued over two weeks uh, in the Old Bailey, but for that reason, uh, she found that he would not be extradited. It dropped like a bombshell. Uh, and then she scurried out of the court. Um, and, and of course, what followed then was that um, they applied for bail and bail was refused and Julian was sent right back to Belmarsh Prison, back to the very conditions that had uh, uh, had such a detrimental effect on his mental health and his health generally. Uh, and that's where he is today. Um, so now it's heading 
for the second highest court in, uh, in Britain, the high court, the highest court is the Supreme Court, may well indeed get there. I doubt it somehow. I think that when it goes to the high court and is um, uh, and, and uh, her decision, which is being appealed against by the United States, um, that is that he is uh, there contending that he would not be at risk uh, in a US prison. Uh, when that goes before the High Court, I believe the High Court will, will reject it and I believe they will free Julian. That's possibly in late June. So here he is, uh, it's like preemptive uh, incarceration uh, two years plus, and not to mention the seven years uh, plus. Yeah, it, 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 it's astonishing, isn't it? I mean, because when you when you read what she said, how if if someone like Beretza, who was uh, demonstrably the enemy of the defendant, when didn't even she didn't even pose to be uh, any kind of impartial uh, judge administering the law. She put herself up as intensely hostile to and the enemy of uh, Julian and all his witnesses, all the good people who came to give evidence on his behalf. And then right at the end, she says this. Why she said it, we can speculate forever, and I don't think it's worth the speculation. But um, it's an important decision because in Britain, once a lower court, such as her court, uh, makes that decision, the high court is reluctant to turn it over. Right. Uh, if it had been the other way around, it would have been a struggle. But this way around, uh, the High Court always looks favourably on a decision made in the lower court uh, before it considers uh, the, uh, the appeal. So I suppose it's like a handicap. It puts, it puts Julian, at least on paper, slightly ahead. Yes. I, I, slightly ahead. I, I totally agree with that. And, um, you know, what I, what I don't understand is, is uh, what will happen. I can't figure out what will happen if the high court upholds it and then uh, they release him. What happens then? Does he get expelled out of the country to uh, Australia where they're more likely uh, to extradite Julian than this country? Or, or, uh, That's <laughs> That's the $64,000 question, Randy, uh, whatever the figure is these days. That is the question. What will happen then? I mean, there are, in one sense, and with the heaviest of irony, Britain may then be the safest place for Julian if he is allowed to stay, which in effect would mean granting him 
asylum or indefinite leave to stay in Britain because he can't uh, he can't be put through the system twice. Right. Um, it, it would be torture. It really would. It's already torture. Let's be honest. Well, it would just it would it would. It's a bit like double jeopardy. You can't do it. Uh, so that offers him the security of having, uh, if he wins the case, uh, if the, the appeal is rejected, uh, then uh, he, he does have that immediate security. But wh whether that remains secure is another question. Well, are you, are, are you um, um, surprised uh, that the Biden administration uh, is uh, pursuing this appeal? I'm sorry, so are, are, you, are you surprised that the Biden administration, his DOJ, has appealed? No, 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 not at all. No, I'd be surprised if it wasn't. No, and I, I never quite understood the, um, well, I did understand because we're always full of hope, but the rather muted excitement, I suppose, that a new administration might not pursue uh, Julian. Uh, uh, it's the same gang in the Department of Justice, regardless who's sitting up in the White House. It's the same gang pursuing it, being one or two changes, but the same case uh, and the same uh, senior attorney leading it. So, yes, it would be a political decision to keep it going and a political decision to stop it. But, um, uh, you know, if, if people have not realized that there is not, as we used to say, the width of a cigarette paper between the likes of a Trump regime and a Biden regime, then they're living on another planet. Wow. You know, I smoke cigars, so I really can't identify with that, but I, 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 I understand the image there. You're right. There really isn't much, there isn't much difference. Um, uh, but uh, now we have to move to, to your country, where, where you are right now in uh, Australia. What's the general feeling there? Is, is, is there a movement there within? I know some Australian MPs met with the Charge Day Affair uh, from the U.S., uh, in Sydney uh, recently. What's, what's the, um, the scuttlebutt there? Yes, there's, there's a very good uh, and, and very lively small group of MPs. Um, and uh, uh, who are uh, uh, outspoken and supportive of Julian. Um, and that has been extremely helpful. And there, there is a campaign. Um, it's probably diffuse. It's uh, different uh, in different states. Um, I, what the general feeling is, that's always hard to say, Randy, but my own sense in the way people have reacted to my bringing up the subject of Julian uh, has been a positive one, that there is, people when asked, there is support. 
But, you know, politically, the other way, this country, like, like the US, like the UK, and many other countries, is disorientated politically. Uh, it, 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 uh, uh, and COVID has made, um, uh, has certainly made an impact on that. So all I'm saying is it's very difficult to tell. It's, I, I can tell about the government. This is the 51st state of the United States. Um, they've only, all they need to do is change the flag and that's probably not necessary. Um, the, the government, uh, the intelligence uh, establishment, the military establishment, the political establishment, the opposition party, the main opposition party, the media are all integrated into the US uh, uh, system in the way of US thinking. Uh, so when the US says there's going to be a cold war against China, Australia jumps and and uh, it does and conducts its, as it's been doing, this disastrous Cold War against China. When well, the US said back in 2011, we're going to get Julian Assange, forgetting that Julian was an Australian system, system a citizen, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Australian government then of Labour government led by Julia Gillard jumped and uh, the Prime Minister even said that uh, WikiLeaks was accused WikiLeaks of being a criminal organization and wanted to take Julian's passport away with, from him, um, both of which she couldn't do. She had to have the Australian Federal Police point out to her, sorry, Prime Minister, you can't do that. Uh, it would be against the law. So that's how enthusiastic governments here are to support whatever the US is doing. Um, and uh, I think that's a fair assessment. I don't think it's particularly rhetorical or even agitprop. I think that's what happens here. Uh, so when you, if you ask me what would happen with the government, I can, I, I, my response would be, a rather negative one. I cannot see this government going against what the US would want it to do. Uh, and uh, so, uh, particularly this prime minister, weak uh, prime minister, who's already demonstrated his obsequiousness to uh, the last president in Washington. So, as far as the court system goes in Australia, that's different. If, if let's say, the, the British then decided, if Julian was freed and they then decided to deport him to his homeland, uh, and the US did what it would, I suppose, is it likely to do it? Yes, I suppose. Uh, 
would pursue another extradition application in Australia. I think Julian would be successfully defended by the courts, but that would that opens up another chapter of, of years almost of court hearings. The impact on Julian himself um, can't really be calculated and uh, nothing is certain, of course. It could go either way, but I'm offering that rather cautiously optimistic view of the Australian courts. I don't think they would let Julian be extradited to the United States. That's just my guess. Yeah, well, you know, if Australia is the 51st state, the UK is the 52nd state, and uh, Ecuador under Moreno is the 53rd uh, state. Uh, they I got that wrong, 51st, how many are in the US? There's 50. No, I'm saying you'd be 51, the UK would be 52, and oh. then Ecuador would be 53. You're totally right. I'll have a few others. Yeah, of course, I'll have a few others. All right. Well, they used to call them vassals, but look, you know, that's an old-fashioned term. It's, it's a 51st state. You right. know. I never forget, let me just say, there's an image I have in my head that I was so ashamed by it when Obama came to Australia to announce, in effect, to announce this aggressive campaign against China. Uh, and uh, I think that was 2011, I think. Uh, and he um, was given, it was like a king arriving. And there's a, and there's a photograph of Obama going into the Department of Foreign Affairs in, in Canberra, the equivalent of the sort of equivalent of the State Department. And everybody is out cheering him. Uh, extraordinary. This is a foreign leader. And they're cheering. Uh, well, uh, I, <laughs> um, that, that, um, it's, it's very difficult to describe the deference um, that exists in establishment Australia towards the US. It's, it's really unbelievable. I, I see it myself. Uh, it's almost like a banana republic uh, deference uh, to the US, you know, old Cuba uh, back when Batista was in. Uh, I mean, Australia has uh, descended to that level. Uh, John, I, I, I'm looking at this is altogether 10 years or 11 years that Julian has been ensconced out in, indoors. And, and I, I, I looked at an uh, interview that you did with him, I think in 2010. And uh, we're going to play just a little bit of it. And the reason why, it shows you, you guys were talking about the Official Secrecy Act here, just a minute long. Uh, and I, I want to play this uh, for you. And it, it shows his humanity and his humor and yours too, simultaneously. Here it is. What happens when WikiLeaks runs into the United Kingdom, which has some of the most draconian secrecy laws in the world, such as the Official Secrets Act. We haven't found a, a problem publishing uh, UK information. I mean, when we look at the Official Secrets Act label documents, 
um, we see they state that it is an offence to retain the information and it is an offence to destroy the information. So the only possible outcome is that we have to publish the information. <laughs> um, and that's what which we have done on, on many, many occasions. I, I noticed one that I uh, had a, a personal interest in was one that uh, from the Ministry of Defence classified document that um, equated uh, terrorists with investigative journalists as threats. And Russian spies. And Russian spies. Yeah, as, as in fact, in many sections of that report, investigative journalists are the number one uh, threat to the sort of information security uh, of the Ministry of Defence. That was a 2,000-page document on how to stop leaks uh, from the yeah. Ministry of Defence, which, which we leaked. I didn't know whether to be uh, offended or honoured. Well, um, it's ni nice to be having a, an, an impact. <laughs> okay, that was, uh, that was way back in 2010. So you've known him a long time, uh, John, and, uh, and, and you know his personality. You know what kind of individual he is. It, it must tear you apart to watch him undergo this treatment for such a long time. Uh, it's such an innocent guy. Yes, yes, I, I, have, I have felt for him, and I felt for him so much after watching him in court. I was in the Old Bailey uh, for the so-called trial uh, last September, and uh, watching him and, and knowing that when that when Beretza made her decision in January and then ordered him back to the, to Belmarsh prison, um, I, I was absolutely delighted that he was, he'd in effect won the case, but in despair that he should be sent back to a hellhole hell where the very conditions existed that were such that was such a menace to him, and I felt for him very deeply. I have to say this: I was speaking to John Shipton the other day, um, uh, Julian's father, and he speaks to Julian a couple of times a day, uh, and he was saying that he 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 felt that Julian's spirits. Uh, were, had been raised, that his resilience was well on display. And that's the extraordinary thing about him. Resilience is an easy word. You can say it about a lot of things and it doesn't really apply, but it sure applies to him. I've, I could not, I know myself, I could not endure what he has endured. He has the most remarkable resilience. He comes back. The thing that marks us as human beings, I've always felt, is our optimism. Uh, I think that makes us different from other animals. Uh, and whether or not Julian ex expresses an optimism, but a byproduct of that optimism 
is this resilience. And he, he shows it. It is, I have only the greatest admiration for it, and of course for him. Uh, and that has kept him going. Uh, I think if he was freed in June, he would need a long period of recovery, but I do believe he would recover. Yeah. Uh, so I, I take some, some comfort in that. Yeah, he's got that resilience of Nelson Mandela, who did like 30 years in prison before he got out and uh, came out, uh, you know, hit the ground running. I he may need some time. Uh, I know the, um, the collateral effect on, on people like you and others who've known him for a long time, uh, his partner, Stella Morris, and the, the two kids, his mother, and of course, John Shipton, who I had the pleasure of uh, barbecuing some steak for. Uh, up here in uh, in the Catskills a few months back, uh, he's he's a really good, effective uh, spokesperson and mm -hmm. a gentle individual, and I think he's doing a great job lobbying. As are uh, you know other members of his family. Stella has been great, and uh, and his friends like yourself and, and Craig Murray, uh, and, and and John, you posted recently. Uh, about the need for people to get out there uh, and, and show uh, themselves out there uh, for this, uh, you know, to try to right this injustice. And so how significant is it to you that people uh, get organized and get on the street and, and uh, make this a bigger cause than it is? Because, you know, in the U.S., He's not a popular figure, and we all know why, the smear jobs and, you know, the Hillary Clinton thing and uh, the conservatives on the, uh, exposing uh, war crimes. So how important is it, John, to you that people get on the street? Well, I, I look at it, I suppose, uh, from this point of view, that if people don't get on the street, if people don't stand up, if people don't speak out about issues that have uh, not simply affect one individual, but of course, as we're all connected, affect all of us, that undermine our very way of life, our, our um, that 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 change our thinking, that. Uh, subvert us, that corrupt us, if people don't protest about that, if people don't stand up for Julian, stand up for justice, then what have we got? What have we got? Because there are a lot of people now I run into who say, well, what can I do? What can I do? I've, I've done this and I've, I've written to uh, my MP or I've you know, worried about it or what, but what can I do? Well, they just have got to keep doing it. Right. Because you can, ima you can imagine those, those who fought against the great evils like apartheid and slavery, imagine them throwing their hands in the, in, in, in the air saying, oh, oh, what can I do? I can't do anything. We must all do something because collectively, Numbers and voices like yours, Randy, like this program, like everyone speaking out, whether they're sending a tweet or they're, or they're uh, 
joining a vigil, even in the difficult circumstances of COVID restrictions, uh, or they're, they're simply making themselves heard in some way. It's all important because it's like a great chessboard. It'll come together eventually if enough people, if enough people speak out. Right. Uh, that may, that's a terribly optimistic view, I know, and perhaps even a little romantic view. But again, the, the converse of that, if we don't do that, then, then we give up. And especially today, when there are very dark forces are now attempting to, uh, to, to roll over our societies. Um, if we don't speak up, if we don't oppose, if we don't stand up for Julian, we're in trouble. Right. He, he is the most significant political prisoner. There are a lot in this country. There are a lot of people in prison. We've got three million people, a uh, quarter of the prison population in the world. But there's something, about, and I've worked with prisoners for many years, but there's something about this that is universal uh, in, in its nature. It, the, what the impact would be on, uh, on all of us, you, I, you just alluded to that, uh, and to journalism as, as a trade. It, it, it will impact uh, even ones who are corporate, uh, you know, controlled uh, journalists. They, they will feel this. And why haven't they circled the wagons uh, at this point in time and been a little more vocal, John? Well, I'm not sure I agree with that, uh, Randy. Uh, I don't think for a moment anyone's going to come for the editor of The Guardian or the editor of The New York Times because they're part of the problem. They're in bed with the very people who have put Julian in Belmarsh prison and threatened him with 175 years. Uh, so I think that they're safe because they've been collaborating for so long uh, at the very least, compliant for so long that I don't think they are at risk. But journalism, like many things, has always depended on, uh, on honourable exceptions. And the honourable exceptions have, like Julian, Julian is an honourable exception par excellence. Uh, and journalism, any great name, great reputation, that journalism uh, has managed to salvage from the generally poor name it has among the public is due to these people who are prepared to do their job properly, and that is be the agents of people, not of power. The corporate journalists you refer to, uh, whether they like to think so or not, uh, operate as agents of, of power in some form. Uh, it's as Martha Gellhorn used to say, you know, you're either looking down uh, through the telescope from the top down or from the bottom up. If you're looking from the top down, you're with the powerful. If you're looking from the bottom up, you're with the people, and you know then what's happening. That, that is those people, the honourable exceptions, they're the ones at risk, at real risk. Um, and 
as far as the rest goes, I don't think anyone on CNN is at risk. Uh, right. They're, 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 part, they're, they're all part of a propaganda system that is, has been part of uh, the prosecution of Julian Assange. The media has been part of the prosecution of Julian. Uh, that's never really been understood or it's never really been underlined. Uh, it's that uh, the, the long campaign of smear and defamation conducted by the Guardian newspaper against Julian uh, was part of that campaign. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it, was, it was that campaign. So, Go ahead, John. I'm sorry. So, so it, it comes down to those, and they, they still keep popping up. We know they are, you know, they're, they're all on the net now. Uh, there maybe one or two in newspapers, uh, I'm sorry, I haven't heard of, or magazines that I haven't read. But to my knowledge, they're, all, they're almost always on the internet. Uh, 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 hard-working, energetic, uh, committed journalists committed to finding out the truth and commit, committed to calling power in all its forms to account. Um, and, and, and Julian, Julian and WikiLeaks uh, was one of them. That's, um, the, uh, and, and the reason that the smear campaigns were conducted against him was that he represented a new world of people not needing to have long and illustrious careers on newspapers, uh, but that uh, proper journalism could be conducted on the internet uh, and you didn't have to be a member of the club. Julian's great crime was that he refused to be a member of the club. Um, and, um, and he was, that was intolerable. On The Guardian, it was unforgivable. Uh, and uh, and uh, disgraceful campaigns by the New York Times, Washington Post, you name them, um, uh, that you often used each other's uh, spiteful attacks on him. Um, they, they were, they were, uh, they regarded, they were, they were frightened of him, in fact, because the honorable exceptions like Julian shame corporate journalism. They show them for what they are, that simply an extension of authority, yeah, not journalism. It reminds me of Salieri in, 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 in Amadeus, uh, Salieri being jealous of uh, Mozart and uh, tried to subvert his career all the way through the film. And I don't know if that's true in real life, but that's what I call these uh, journalists, uh, Salieri's. Uh, you mentioned uh, other uh, journalists that have uh, followed your lead, John, your lead, uh, Max Blumenthal from, uh, from uh, the Gray Zone. We were talking about you the other day. And we're saying, look at what John, 
This would not happen today. Nobody's doing this today. Going back to uh, your films, uh, Vietnam, the, the Quiet Mutiny, Palestine is still the issue. Year Zero, the silent uh, death of Cambodia, the Mexicans, Nicaragua, inside Burma. I mean, uh, the war uh, on democracy. You've been doing this for a long period of time. He says it was amazing that you were able to raise money or get paid and, and do it. Uh, because there is no way uh, something like what you've been doing for forever, all the way up until the latest one uh, on the dirty war on the NHS. He says it's just it's just mind boggling that you've been. How have you been able to do it, John? What has changed? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure the answer to that, Randy. Um, I'm. Uh, <clears throat> I, I believe passionately in journalism. I, I felt that when I became a journalist, it was a great privilege. And I've never lost a sense of that, that wonder uh, of, of, uh, of being a journalist. I've become very cynical about many things, but never about the actual craft of journalism. That is a craft conducted in its, in its pure sense, uh, uh, informing people, giving them the truth, and not simply representing the vested interests of, of great power. I've always believed in that. So I, I, this is not an answer to your question, but it, it's something it, that, is, that has, uh, <coughs> has driven me. Um, but I found out very early that <clears throat> if I did something that really hit the spot, that was had an impact, like my first film was The Quiet Mutiny, and that probably broke the story of the uh, rebellion in the U.S. Army, within the U.S. Army in, in Vietnam. Uh, <clears throat> every fan whirring around the world was hit by something, I can tell you, when that came out. And boy, uh, <laughs> was, I, realized, I realized that if I was going to keep doing uh, this kind of investigation, uh, I'd better get used to it. Yeah, it's and one of those. I, suppose, uh, I, I don't know whether I ever got used to it, but I certainly developed a certain, my own kind of resilience to it. Um, in recent years <clears throat> have been the hardest. Uh, I've always had difficulty. There's been no halcyon period really when it hasn't been difficult to get uh, work up and shown, but the rec recent years have been hardest as corporate rules even corporate rules applied by good people, but corporate rules uh, apply to journalism and restrictions become greater uh, and raising funds for films becomes more difficult. I've always found it very difficult to be a kind of supplicant to go and find, find money and uh, uh, apart from crowdfunding, uh, 
and uh, to get to persuade rich people to give me money to make films that went against their interests. Um, so it's been harder recently, but then propaganda has, that's the story actually, propaganda has become uh, the, has become virulent, a form of propaganda that seeps into all our lives and will change the way we, we think, the way we act, and the way we uh, almost willingly give up our rights, our democratic rights, our, our lawful rights. Uh, so, um, um, perhaps earlier on, it was, it was, I can only say it was easier, marginally easier, but it's always been difficult. But then if you feel passionately about something, you keep going. You know, I always say to young people, you know, they say, well, how do I do it? Well, you, I say, you follow your star and you keep an eye on your star and you keep going and you keep going in every way you can. Some don't want to do that. You know, I, I must tell you that I, I in, in my own way, I can uh, identify you know, doing political humor, left wing political humor, anti-corporate, anti-war political humor. Uh, it, very difficult to find uh, an audience in, in the U.S. Uh, that will like show up in, in, in a typical place. I, I used to have a joke. I did well in three areas. The Upper West Side of Manhattan, the Lower East Side, and in Cuba. That's it. That's the only crowds that would uh, really appreciate my comedy. So, <laughs> places, all of them. <laughs> yeah, I used to do my act in front of the U.S. Embassy in Managua, where you did the film uh, Nicaragua, uh, yeah. People's Right to Survive, uh, in 1983. Uh, I used to do my act in front of the U.S. Embassy for uh, what were called Sandalises, uh, internationalists that would show up. Uh, at peace vigils at 7 a.m. in the morning uh, there on a Thursday. And I got to tell you, I would drink that rum there. And during the war, it really wasn't fermented. I'd show up like 15 minutes of sleep and a nasty hangover. But the crowd crowds were always good. That film, along with Vietnam and these others, 60, I think up to 61 films are all available at johnpilger.com. And uh, you should, you should go to johnpilter.com and look at videos. You can see them all, plus a bunch of interviews that you did back in the 80s with individuals like uh, Leslie Gellhorn, uh, who you just uh, mentioned. Uh, yeah. It's really quite, quite a, a library there, John. And it's also, uh, it's archived at the, uh, at the British Library, uh, which uh, went in, in, uh, in uh, 2017. Uh, you know, and I, I want to speak about this. Uh, many you've you've been you've received so many awards, and the, the one I'm looking at here, the, the the Sophie Prize. I like this. This is, must have been 15 years ago because it says, "For 30 years of exposing injustice and promoting human rights." You mm. know, and so that's what that that's what that prize is all about. And so that's what you've done. That's the theme throughout your films is promoting human rights and exposing injustice. All 61, not a popular, popular, uh, you know, uh, issues to uh, for, for the for the for the masses in this country. But I people should take a look. And the reason why I bring that up is because Julian Assange, I think he he basically 
subscribes or he's adopted the same type of principles when it comes to his brand of journalism. Would you not concur with that? I do agree with that. I think that Julian, uh, I think what, what impressed me when I first met Julian, and I asked him a question that very few of a, very few ask him. They don't want to ask him. Why did you start WikiLeaks? Uh, and he has a quite an eloquent response to this uh, because people have, uh, again, I paraphrase him, people have, he said, the moral right to transparency. They have a right to know when their government is telling the truth, when their government is lying. They have a right to know how uh, wars are conducted in our name. They have a right to know when crimes are committed in our name. Uh, so that he, he, he gave the whole notion of transparency uh, a moral sense, and I agree with that. Um, <clears throat> if you look at the so-called corporate reporting, uh, stand back and look at it, you'll see what's missing among many things, but what's missing from it all is any kind of moral sense. Uh, various so-called, quote, experts will be quoted to try and achieve some false balance of right and wrong, but never what is truly right and wrong. Look at the way the Middle East is reported. Uh, it's reported as the, the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Never, almost never, the occupation, the longest running occupation in modern times of, of a people, uh, because that would then transfer it to the right and wrong. Now, I'm slightly off into tangent there, but that, that sense of morality uh, I was, was not the whole picture when, of why Julian started WikiLeaks, but it was, it was central, I think. He, um, he, he, uh, he believes in this so passionately, he, he hasn't really got any, got any interest, material interest. Uh, you might, no, he hasn't. Uh, uh, even his own, I know in various, at various times, he's had the possibility of relaxation of some of the restrictions going back a few years, but that meant giving up some of, uh, uh, of or holding back on the release of certain leaks and, and he wouldn't do it. Um, he has a, a moral view of people's right to know. And the ultimate irony, it's built into that utterly useless document, the American Constitution, which is, 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 never, is, is, is never there when it's needed, as in this case, uh, which is meant to protect people like Julian. Well, that's what he, that's what he believes in. It's a right to know, that we have a right to know these things. I believe in that, and I believe that, that all moral thinking and 
dare I say it, even Democrats, small d Democrats, should believe that. Absolutely. Uh, John, I got to tell you, this time has gone by so quickly uh, that uh, it seems like we're halfway through, but uh, we are... Uh, we are at the end of this conversation. Uh, it was so fascinating uh, yeah. and, and illuminating and inspiring, uh, just as your work uh, for the last six decades has been and as uh, Julian's work has been. Uh, I hope he's out there joining you uh, out in the field uh, soon. Uh, and I just want to thank you for all that you have done, uh, not just for humanity, but also specifically for Julian Assange's cause. Thank you very much, John Pilger. Thank you, Randy, and thank you for all you've done. The very thing I've been talking about is that of commitment. Uh, you, you, your work embodies that. And uh, so thank you. You inspire me big time. All right, uh, we'll be right back. Um, we're going to go out with, um, this is uh, Vera Lynn. Uh, this is a live performance and from 1943, and it's an allusion to John's great film, The Coming War on China, which we didn't even get to. We'll be right back with Nathan Fuller for some uh, closing remarks. We meet again, don't know when, don't know when, but I know. Just like you always do Till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away And I will never go to the cross and go Tell me who we are John Pilger, uh, pure gold, as Julian Assange used to tell me. Get Pilger on, he's pure gold. I'm Randy Critical. This is Randy Critical live on the fly on WBAI 99.5 FM. We are continuing our series, Assange Countdown to Freedom, which started exactly four years ago uh, tomorrow. Now, tomorrow is another big day, uh, Sunday. It's the, um, as John uh, alluded to, the the two-year anniversary of Assange being kidnapped and foisted inside this squalid prison. Uh, and uh, right now, there's a lot of things happening, and we're going to go to uh, Nathan Fuller, who is the executive director of the uh, foremost uh, Assange defense group, uh, which is the Courage Foundation. Uh, welcome, Nathan, and the floor is yours. Thanks, Randy. Appreciate you having me and appreciate you uh, yeah, giving airtime to this April 11th. It's a really important day to mark... Uh, Two years since Assange has been arrested, and remember that uh, more than a year and a half of that is uh, unconvicted time. You know, he served a very short bail sentence, and now he's been incarcerated in horrible, squalid conditions, as you say, uh, solely on the U.S. behalf. So we're marking that with uh, protests around the world. 
Uh, I'm here in the US uh, leading Assange Defense Committee, and that's at assangedefense.org. Uh, and you can see a list of events around Europe, around Australia, uh, across the US. Uh, we have uh, lots of people in different, uh, it's, it's good to see people are getting out on the street again uh, to, uh, to rally and, and make people aware that this is two years gone now. Uh, so the legal situation, just to quickly mention, is that uh, the defense team has filed its appeal paperwork uh, responding to the U.S. Uh, appealing the extradition ruling. So uh, we're going to hear sometime in the next uh, several weeks, we expect, from the high court when the appeal will be heard. And uh, But in the meantime, we want people to remember that Joe Biden and the U.S. administration, Merrick Garland, could drop these charges at any moment. They could drop the appeal, drop the case, uh, and that's what they should do. And uh, so we're calling on Merrick Garland to... Uh, you know, take a new assessment of this case, look at the facts now that he's leading the Justice Department uh, and realize that this is a, a really dangerous threat to the First Amendment that should just be dropped altogether. All right. Uh, so, um, Nathan, there's uh, vigils and there's a demo in New York City uh, right there on 47th and 2nd to New York City Free Assange. I'm going to try to be there tomorrow uh, at 11 a.m. Uh, so um, it's really important. Nathan, uh, people can uh, reach you on Twitter at Courage Found, right? Yep. And Defense Found. Assange and the website is AssangeDefense.org. Okay. Thank you very much. And thank you for all your hard work. You're a real inspiration. Uh, I'm Randy Credico, uh, Randy Credico, live on the fly. Uh, join us uh, next Wednesday. Uh, we're going to be talking to Reality Winners Mother. All right. Uh, we're going to go out now. I want to thank everybody. Uh, support the station. Give to WBAI.org, and we're going to go out with a little Leonard Cohen. See you next Wednesday. When I poured across the border. I was cautioned to surrender. This I could not do. I took my gun and vanished. I have changed my name so often. I've lost my wife and children, but I have many friends. And some of them are with me. An old woman gave us shelter, kept us hidden in the garret. Then the soldiers came. She died without a whisper. There were three of us this morning I'm the only one this evening But I must go on The frontiers are my prison Oh, the wind, the wind is blowing Through the graves the wind is blowing Freedom soon will come then we'll come from shadow Les amants étaient chez moi Ils me disent, signe-toi Mais je n'ai 